Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, it is Monday, February 20th, and I am so glad you are here. It is President's Day, so maybe you are taking the day off from work Except I think most of us have to work. Maybe if you work at the post office or a bank, you get today off. But beyond that, I'm not really sure how many people get this day as a holiday. Anyway, there's a lot going on today. There's an aftershock in Turkey. President Biden showed up, surprisingly, walking the streets of Ukraine. And, of course, former President Jimmy Carter has... um entered what they're calling home hospice. Let's start there. Uh, President Carter, 98 years old. Remember back in like 2014, he was diagnosed with melanoma. In 2015, he had a growth removed from his liver. At that time, doctors at first told him he probably had only weeks to live, and he was like, he made... A typical Carter announcement. He was like, you know what? I've had a great life. Whatever happens, happens. And then they tried an experimental therapy and they eradicated his cancer, his malignant melanoma. And uh, they pronounced him cured. What we know right now is that he has been making a series of stays at his local hospital and uh, without a lot of detail. We don't know if this is definitely the return of his cancer, as some are speculating, or if it's something else. I mean, the man's 98. And uh, the Carter Center, which he started after leaving the presidency, announced that Rather than continuing to bounce in and out of the hospital, he was going to stay at home and receive hospice care. Hospice care is, of course, uh, palliative care when you, when someone is believed to be within six months of the end of their life. It is designed to keep somebody as comfortable and pain free as possible. And um, that is apparently what is happening. The family has asked for privacy. They say they are grateful for the concern shown. But Jimmy Carter making the decision to forego any additional sort of medical intervention and simply go home and stay as comfortable as he can for as long as he's able to do so. You know, he's one of the few presidents who has almost accomplished more in his post-presidential years than he did as president. He started the Carter Center, and in part, the Carter Center monitors elections around the world, makes sure elections are free and fair in over 100 countries around the world. But that's not all. He has de- he decided that there was going to be a public health component 
to the work of the of the Carter Center. I'm not sure how he identified this particular illness. But the Carter Center said that they were going to work starting in the in the 80s. They were going to try to get rid of something called the guinea worm disease. It's it's um, it's a parasite found in drinking water, particularly in Africa. In 1986, 3.5 million people had this parasitic disease. In 1986. In 2021, after the Carter Center working to bring clean water and kill this parasite around the world, in 1986, remember, 3.5 million people were infected with this parasite. In 2021, there were 14 human cases reported, 14 from 3.5 million people infected in 1986 to 14 people infected in 2021. Now that, my friends, is a public health success. Oh, and yeah, along the way, for brokering peace in the Middle East, he picked up a Nobel Prize. Some people said Jimmy Carter was too nice to be president. And certainly that's what his niceness, his kindness, his unrelenting goodwill, and his devotion to public service are what have defined him in his post-presidential years. You know, you've seen those pictures. He took a, he took a fall. He had a black eye. He had a bandage on his head. He went to the hospital, got fixed up, and what did he do? Did he go home and put his feet up? No. He went to a site where Habitat for Humanity was building a house, and he spent the day helping build the house. That was Habitat for Humanity was one of the efforts that he devoted a lot of his attention and energy to. Now, I think um, there's a lot that can be said about this guy. But, um, you know, he sort of prided himself on his truthfulness, on his character. And uh, so it was kind of interesting when Donald Trump was president. At the age of 93, um, Jimmy Carter published a book called Faith. And he went on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert to promote it. First thing Colbert asked him was, you know, a lot of times people in politics publish a book before they're going to make a run for the presidency. Are you here to tell us something? And Jimmy Carter laughed and he said, no, I think there's an age limit. And Stephen Colbert was, well, I know you have to be at least 35 on the young end. He said, but I don't think there's a limit on the other end. And Jimmy Carter looked at him and remember, Jimmy Carter's 93 at the time. He looks at Stephen Colbert and he goes, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's 93. 93. <laughs> if you're 93 or older, you can't run for president. <clears throat> then Stephen Colbert asked him <clears throat> about Donald Trump, particularly like did 
Did he pray for Donald Trump? I want you to listen to this whole exchange. Listen to this. Does America want kind of a jerk as president? Oh, apparently from his recent election (laughs) year. I never knew it before. <laughs> what do you think? What do you think it takes to, to, to be president? What's the one one of quality that it requires to be a good president? I used to think it was to tell the truth, mm-hmm. but I've changed my mind lately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you think that you were criticized for telling truth to the American people? Uh, well, I I think I told the truth almost all the time, and uh, yeah, almost I, all the time. I think I just got a uh, broke news there. When did you? <laughs> Not tell the truth to the American well, people. Well, my mother said uh, I used to tell little white lies. Mm-hmm. That's and what Hope so, Hicks says, too. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, one time she had an interview, and a woman came in to interview Mama, and, and uh, she said, well, Oh, little white lies. So Jimmy does tell what little white lies. What is that? And she said, Well, you know, when, I, when you came in the door, and I said, I'm glad to see you, and you look very nice. <laughs> so... Yeah, a little white lie or not. That's the level. That's the level. Um, uh, now, as an ex-president, have you? Do you speak to the other ex-presidents? Oh, sure. Ever? In fact, I'll be with two of them tomorrow. Oh, who? With George W. Bush and with Bill Clinton. Okay. Now, do all the ex-presidents feel kind of good that since Trump's in office, all of you have gone up the ranks? <laughs> You've all just been pushed up one level there. I don't know about the rest of them. <laughs> <laughs> but do you feel pretty good about it? You pray a lot. Um, do you pray for Donald Trump? I pray that he'll be a good president and that he'll keep our country at peace mm-hmm. and uh, that he'll refrain from using nuclear weapons mm-hmm. and that he will promote human rights. So, yeah, pray for him. Isn't that just Jimmy Carter right there? And I mean, you know, who knows what exactly is wrong with him? Who knows um, whether we're talking hours, days, weeks, months. But I'm so glad that a man who has given so much to this country is going to have a little bit of time at least to see how much the country values him and what he did and what he stood for and who he was. We should all be so lucky. Uh, I told you about an earthquake and aftershock in Turkey. Pretty bad one. 6.4 magnitude. The death toll, by the way, from that those first two quakes that hit that area around the Turkey-Syria border. In adding the death toll from Turkey and Syria together, there are now more than 40 6,000 deaths. 46,000 people. Um, Right now, there are no deaths reported in this aftershock, but there is some concern that buildings that were still standing but were a little bit shaky, that those buildings might come down after this one. People being warned about that. Other news of this day, in a surprise visit, President Biden walked the streets of Ukraine with President Zelensky. We're going to talk more about that, bring you more right after a break. 
Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Uh, by the way, uh, I want to let you know, speaking of uh, Jimmy Carter, tomorrow afternoon at 3.30, Tuesday at 3.30, we're going to be talking to Jonathan Alter. He uh, wrote one of the best books ever written on Jimmy Carter. It's called His Very Best, and we're going to be talking with Jonathan about a Mr. Carter. Now, today, by well, also Tuesday, tomorrow, President Biden is going to be meeting with the president of Poland, President Duda. Uh, today, though, he met with a different president, the president of Ukraine, President Zelensky. Apparently, uh, he took a train ride that lasted 10 hours from Poland to Ukraine, since the airspace over Ukraine is uh, not safe at this point in time. Most world leaders take the train in from Poland when they go there. That's what President Biden did. And uh, he walked the streets of Kiev with the Ukrainian president. Remember, it is this Friday, the 24th, that marks the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Tomorrow, interestingly, Vladimir Putin is supposed to be making a big speech. Everybody seems to be very interested in what he will have to say or not say about what's going on in Ukraine. But um, President Biden walking the streets, going to St. Michael's, uh, the only indication came just a few hours before he made the trip. Even the the people of the country, you know, only learned that somebody of a high rank from the United States was visiting because the certain streets were barricaded. Some of the Ukrainian security forces were put at various locations to try to limit access to where the president was going to be walking with Ukrainian President Zelensky. I thought... um, Richard Engel, who has spent virtually his entire adult life as a foreign correspondent for NBC. I mean, he has been, let's see, the Iraq War, Desert Storm. He's been to the front lines all over the world for decades, covering different wars. And I, he did a really interesting interview on MSNBC, and he pointed out a couple of things that I didn't think about. You know, presidents have gone to areas before where we are at war, but those have almost always been armed conflicts that the United States has been involved in, boots on the ground. And when those presidents visited, they visited the U.S. military bases. So, yes, other presidents have gone to war zones, but they've gone in a manner that was far more protected than what President Biden just did in Ukraine. Richard Engel, who's covered all of these conflicts and most of these presidents, talked about how the Biden visit was different and also how, frankly, what Biden is doing and the message he is sending Those are probably a couple of things that are making Vladimir Putin 
really, really angry right about now. Listen to what Richard Engel had to say about those things on MSNBC. The United States is really central to this conflict. Uh, President Biden is personally central to this conflict. The United States is the main supplier of Ukraine uh, for for weapons and financial support. It's running about uh, $4 billion a month currently. And for President Putin, uh, this this conflict is very personal. He personally blames uh, President Biden. He personally blames the United States. When you listen to President Putin's speeches, and he's going to give another major one tomorrow, and I assume this uh, will be obliquely referenced Uh, we will see. Uh, He talks about the United States. He talks about how uh, Russia isn't at war with Ukraine, that Ukraine is really just the surrogate for an American-led aggression against this country. So to see the American president on a secret trip walking openly in the middle of Kyiv must burn uh, President Putin. He he wanted to conquer the, 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 the capital. He wanted to com- conquer Ukraine quickly a year ago. Instead, uh, his forces were driven back, and now he's launching a second offensive to try and do what he could not do over the last year. From as far as American presidential trips go to a war zone, this is also very different. Uh, I've covered presidential trips to Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, they came in. Those, uh, both of those countries had large American uh, military presence. Uh, he also, th- those uh, foreign presidents also went to uh, military bases where the airspace was controlled, uh, where the entire, uh, wh- who came uh, in and out of those bases was monitored and regulated. Uh, President Biden was just in the center of Kiev. He, he was just in front of St. Michael's Cathedral. And yes, extra security was put in, uh, put in place, but those are, uh, those are areas where normal Ukrainians live, where not every single Department can be searched. You don't know exactly who you're going to run into when you go into an uncontrolled uh, urban environment in a war zone. So uh, it, it was an ex- exceptional uh, step, and I'm sure the, the message was not lost on Vladimir Putin. I'm sure the message was not lost on Vladimir Putin. Um, speaking of this, part of the reason why Vladimir Zelensky is still asking for more in the way of munitions. Russia launched 36 cruise missiles across Ukraine in one single day. Now, the Ukrainians shot down 16 of those. That means 20 missiles got through. And you know Russia is targeting infrastructure. They're not going after military targets. (laughs) They're going after the power grid. They're going after hospitals. And as you may have read over the weekend... It is being reported more and more often that they are using a strategy in cities called the double tap. They send a missile, say, to an apartment building, and the apartment building gets hit. First responders show up. The wounded and the dead are being brought out. There's medical personnel on site, and that's when Russia sends the second missile, a second missile designed specifically to kill the first responders. That is a war of terror. They want people to be too afraid to respond and help those who are injured. Vladimir Putin, there's, I hope there's a special place in hell for people like Vladimir Putin. Nobody deserves it more. NATO, by the way, is also rising to the challenge. NATO defense ministers met in uh, Brussels. The Secretary General, Jen Stoltenberg, 
is uh, trying to get NATO to send more ammunition to Ukraine. Everyone believes that um, Vladimir Putin is prepping for what they're calling a spring offensive to try to yet again retake this country. The United States also seems to be of a mind that things are going to get worse in Ukraine before they get better. The embassies all around the world and in the United States, our government, have urged American citizens, well, uh, hopefully all American citizens are out of Ukraine by now, but they're now urging American citizens to leave Russia. It is believed that Vladimir Putin might start taking hostages. Well, he wouldn't, he wouldn't do so quite so overtly. He would bring trumped up charges against Americans in Russia and have them arrested. That's how Putin operates. And the U.S. government says if there are American citizens in Russia, whether you're there for school, whether you're there for work, whether you're there as a tourist, get out, get out now, get out as quickly as you can. Because things are probably going to get pretty bad. And as Putin starts grasping at straws, President Biden said that there's going to be more sanctions announced in the near future. Any American in Russia is likely to be a target. We're going to take a break and shift gears back to looking at the state of Illinois. There is a state senator who has been doing a lot to try to create legislation around the issue of affordable housing. We're going to talk to her about that when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We often talk to people in the legislature down in Springfield. It's the best way to find out what we should be paying attention to, what we should be supporting, and maybe sometimes what we should be fighting against. One of the issues that you have heard me talk about a lot in the last few weeks is this idea of affordable housing. You know, areas get popular, they gentrify, property taxes go up. The people who've lived there their whole lives get driven out, have to find cheaper housing somewhere else. And lots of times finding that less expensive housing is really hard. It seems that, you know, you see a new building being built, a new apartment building. And does it ever say, hey, you know, just we're going to be just a regular apartment building? No. What do you see? Luxury apartments. Yes. You know, there must be a massive need for luxury apartments around the state of Illinois, because I don't think I've seen a new building go up anywhere that didn't say that they were luxury apartments. And whether or not the apartments are really that nice, you can bet they're expensive. So it seems to be a situation that we aren't really dealing with in the best possible way. One of the people down in Springfield who is working on this issue is State Senator Ann Gillespie. She represents the 27th District in Illinois and joins us now to talk about this work and all the work that she has been doing down there. Anne, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me, John. It's a pleasure. 
Um, explain to me, like I've talked with, as a matter of fact, I think I got your name from some of the people I talked with and they were like, you know, we will, you know, we're an activist group and we can talk about the issue, but you know, who's really working on it is Ann Gillespie. So I said, we need to get Ann Gillespie on here so she can tell us what is happening. Obviously, this is an issue that is, has been with us, is with us now, is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. But it's it's a tricky issue to try to handle in a way that is fair and equitable. So talk to me about your view of affordable housing, and then we'll talk about the legislation. Okay. Um, It's been uh, an issue, and the thing that really struck me when I first ran for office is how much of an issue it is across the state. It's not just a city of Chicago issue. One of the things I hear up here um, and it seems to be more for seniors up here, is the ability to stay in their uh, communities that they've lived in for years once they're on a fixed income. And it's really tough. In the Chicago area alone, we have a shortage of over 200,000 affordable rental homes um, for people making 52,000 or less for a family of four. It's really, there's really a um, dearth of stock. So the first thing I focused on uh, in 2021 uh, was working with Senators Hunter and Feigenholz to create uh, an omnibus bill that gave three different ways to incentivize developers to commit to affordable housing. Um, and uh, so it's, it's really focusing on increasing the stock of affordable housing. Now, I know that there is a requirement, at least in Chicago, that developers have to have a certain percentage of affordable u- units. But they have been allowed, in a lot of cases, to build them off-site. In other words, like Lincoln Yards, mm-hmm. you know, they were required to give to have X percent of affordable units. But as I understand it, they struck a deal where whatever that number came to, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100, they could they would build them, but they're not going to build them at Lincoln Yards. They're going to build them elsewhere. So they're going to honor their commitment, just not where they're doing the luxury apartments. Are you okay with that? Some people are, some people aren't. I'm I'm really not, and the the reason I'm not is um, it's it's critical that these units get integrated into the community. Um, we don't want to stigmatize people that need affordable housing. And the other thing is when they move them off site, they tend to move them away from easy access to public transportation, which is a critical factor for these families being able to get to work. Exactly. And that's one of the things that the activists have talked to me about. You know, you have people, There's there are people who are willing to take jobs that don't pay very well, but oftentimes they can't find housing near those jobs. For instance, the example always given to me was O'Hare. You know, you need a lot of janitors. You need a lot of waiters and waitresses and bartenders. And those might not be um, high-paying jobs, but it becomes even more onerous when you can't find housing and you're driving two hours a day to and from that job. And the argument being that, you know, yeah, no matter how upscale your neighborhood is, you know, you want to have restaurants, you want to have people working in the kitchen, you want to have people who can bust the tables and wash the dishes. You can't realistically have that if those people can't live um, 
within a decent amount of distance from those jobs. So one of the arguments that I've always heard was, you know, because people are like, well, you know, it's a wealthy neighborhood. And if you can afford to live there, great. And if you can't, well, that's just how it is. But then people also complain about their favorite restaurant no longer being open for dinner or no longer being open seven days a week because they can't find the people to work in the kitchen. And that's because, you know, the closest housing they can find is two hours away. Um, it's a really complicated yeah. issue. Yeah, that's exactly right, Joan. That's one of the big issues that I see out here in my district in the suburbs is we have folks that we have a vibrant downtown Arlington Heights, for example, a lot of restaurants, a lot of entertainment venues. But the folks that are working in those jobs are having two-hour commutes, um, and they have to go by car because public transportation across the suburban area is not available. It's um, You can only get it on a commuter basis going into the city pretty much. So it's really critical that we view this as a statewide problem. It is not just a Chicago problem. And it's not, um, these aren't people that are homeless um, all the, across the board. It's all kinds of people that need affordable housing. It's people that are working lower income jobs. It's people, the seniors that want to stay in their community. And in some cases it is folks that are homeless. But the, the critical thing is focusing on what, what, um, where we need, where we have gaps in the housing and getting that housing there so that people can live near where their jobs are. One of the things that in the legislation I'm introducing in this year is uh, taking an example from Hawaii, where they have uh, to deal with their housing problem. They created a fast track process where if the county um, approves of the housing and it meets um, safety standards at the county level, then it bypasses the local zoning. One of the things we see is that there's so many different local zoning um, requirements that it's really hard for developers to keep track of what all the variances are amongst the different localities or different sections. And so having some kind of standard at a broader level, like the county level, I think is really going to help us develop more housing and create more stock. I was reading about this issue <clears throat> as it applies to uh, a, a different a different country, um, and they were proposing regulations that would require any property. I think this was in Portugal. <clears throat> I was reading about that there are they're considering legislation that any property that's that's not being lived in must be filled. And the government would step in and act as a broker. No more, you know, buying a house and letting it sit or, or inheriting a house and not doing anything with it. They are considering legislation to help their housing problem that any, any particular building that is not occupied is going to be filled. And they're also actually what I thought was interesting. They're also talking about eliminating tourist rentals. So I suppose that would be uh, the Airbnb uh, Verbo kind of kind of rentals because they want more units available for Portuguese people who need them. Now, that was, I thought, a pretty, you know, that probably wouldn't fly here. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's a, at least it's an example of somebody seeing a problem and trying to address it. What are we doing here in Illinois? 
Yeah, so that's a very creative approach. And a, a similar uh, thing I think we need to look at here is as um, workplaces are changing and we're having more hybrid work from home, people aren't working in office buildings all the time. We have a lot of uh, vacancies in office buildings. Those could easily be converted into affordable housing. And so I think that's something that we should look at. Maybe take a similar approach where the state requires that empty commercial buildings um, be converted into housing. Um, I want to talk to you. We need to take a break. And I'm talking to State Senator Ann Gillespie. Um, she is currently working on some legislation in Springfield to try to ease the affordable housing crisis. We're going to talk about that in more detail when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by State Senator Ann Gillespie. She represents Illinois' 27th district, and we are talking about affordable housing. She is currently working on some legislation to address the issue. And tell us what you're working on and what you hope it'll accomplish. Mm-hmm. I, I have two bills currently, Joan. One, as I mentioned, is modeled after Hawaii's legislation to fast track approval of affordable housing by bypassing some local zoning in uh, exchange for a countywide um, zoning kind of an approach. The second thing I'm working on is uh, a a bill that will strengthen the requirements under the existing affordable housing plans, require the State of Housing Appeals Board to review the plans, um, require uh, that the uh, composition of the board uh, be broader so that we've got um, people that represent the communities on the board, and requiring um, that we up the ante from 10%, which is the current requirement, that a community has to uh, have a housing plan uh, to create a 10% affordable housing to up that to 20%. We're seeing this, um, the problem growing, not getting, not easing. Um, and I, I think that as some of these pandemic financial supports start to come off, um, I just fear that it's going to get uh, worse. And I think it's important that we be proactive on this. You know, Joan, this is this issue that is, it's personal for me because when I was a kid, um, we lost our family home after my uh, dad was in a plane crash and had um, life-altering injuries coming out of it. So I've experienced housing insecurity, and I know that the stigma that this is its a problem only because people aren't working hard enough is just not right. Things happen in people's lives that create the situation, and we need to have a safety net to help support them. You know, one thing that I try to do usually before I start a discussion is define our terms, and I realize we haven't done that. So how do you define affordable housing? Is there a particular price point? Does it vary from area to area? You're writing the legislation, so you must know what the term affordable housing means. Explain it to us. Generally, it um, the standard that's used is a percentage of the average um, income for the area. So someone qualifies for affordable housing if they're uh, if their income level is X percentage, or I'm sorry, um, if the rental price is at 60% of the median for the area. So um, that's the general rule of thumb. Um, and so it will vary from community to community based on that. Um, mm-hmm. But the goal, and then it matches it up 
with uh, federal poverty levels as well to identify who qualifies for it. So there's a standard on what the pricing of the unit has to be, and then there's a standard on who qualifies for it. Because you, one of the areas you represent is Arlington Heights, the perhaps future home of the Chicago Bears in their big entertainment slash sports stadium slash um, everything anybody could ever want site <laughs> splash coming up. Efforts like that take a lot of lower income jobs, the support staff. The vendors, I mean, you, this is a, this is an issue that is going to be of utmost importance to the people of Arlington Heights. And a lot of times, and I'm sure you've run into this, especially if a community is a little better off, there's sort of a not in my backyard kind of an attitude. So mm-hmm. how do you sell to the not in my backyard folks? The fact that affordable housing is going to is what it takes to make some of these other big income generating efforts work. Mm -hmm. Well, you raised a a good point that I use frequently about folks. You like to go to the restaurants in town. You get frustrated when the staffing's not there. So what are you going to do to help support staff? So these restaurants, these small businesses can hire people. Um, The other thing I do, Joan, is I, I tell my personal story like I just told you to kind of get some of the stigma off of um, uh, the the fears that lead to the NIMBY type of approaches and just explain that these are um, these are people that are working. These are people that have jobs. They just don't have high paying jobs and they're right in our community. They're working in our community today um, and you know them and you want to have them uh, have the opportunity to be closer to where they work, because that's going to help our community thrive and grow. Who is um, who are some of your biggest supporters for this legislation? Um, all the advocates are uh, the, the housing advocates. Um, we also have uh, a number of communities that are very committed to affordable housing that sign on to this. Arlington Heights is one of the few suburbs in my district that actually has uh, a more aggressive ordinance supporting affordable housing um, that they passed a couple of years ago. Um, so we do have some uh, localities that are also involved. Um, we have uh, small business associations um, that are interested in supporting this because they think it will help them uh, attract employees. I know that in the past there have been some legislators who tried to make affordable housing more palatable to the people who were opposing it by saying, well, you know, like in this building, we're going to set aside this many units, but they're only going to be available to veterans or they're only going to be available to disabled people. Do you believe in those kinds of restrictions? And if it's necessary to sell it to a community, is that okay? You know, for the same reasons we talked about the Lincoln Yards one, I really fight against putting those kinds of restrictions on. The only one to me that makes sense is where you're doing supportive housing um, for adults with disabilities. And so that that there's some additional need there um, that dictates the kind of uh, housing framework and the fact that there's some residential support there as well. Um, but other than that, I think it's really important that these be available to families be available to 
um, to singles, be available to seniors, be available to vets, be available to everybody, because the whole idea here is to integrate this and make it a normal part of your community in order to gain that longer-term acceptance. What do you think, bottom lining it here, is is the resistance that somehow people who can't afford to pay a whole lot, uh, that they're more dangerous, that they're dirty, that they're maybe going to be of a different race than us, um, that, oh, I, this is the one my favorite, that it's going to bring down my property values. Is that a legitimate concern? You know, it hasn't proven to be. Um, there's been, I, I can't remember the sites to them, but there's been, there's some data on that that indicates that it doesn't do that. And a lot of times when you, I will, I will say to people and point out different buildings that have affordable housing in them in the community and say, did you know that's affordable housing? Did you know that has it? And they're surprised that most of the time they don't even know because the buildings blend in with everything else around um, and they haven't noticed any kind of changes. So it's really um, some misplaced fears that are out there. They equate uh, affordable housing with housing projects and all the challenges that we had in Chicago with housing projects. And that's what they think um, is coming to their area. And it's it's just trying to explain, no, we've learned from that. We're not doing that model anymore. This is what we're doing. And it really integrates into the community. Explain the difference between the kind of affordable housing you're talking about and what people commonly refer to as Section 8. Um, Section 8 housing is designed for um, uh, an an even lower um, level of income. Um, And commonly those are housing vouchers is what they'll often be referred to as. Um, But it's important to understand that that even housing vouchers aren't what people think they are. There are a lot of seniors out here um, that receive those vouchers because of the fact that they're on fixed incomes at the end of their um, when they're no longer working at the end of their careers. And uh, so, again, it's it's educating folks that um, the the affordable housing is going to be a mix of things in the suburbs. Generally, it's that 60 percent target I was I mentioned earlier. It's um, there may be a mix that has some Section 8 vouchers in it as well, but it's all integrated together. And so you've got a um, it really reflects. Uh, the community in a lot of cases. It's just focusing on supporting people that would have to move out of the community in some cases because they can no longer afford it. Uh, great example of that are areas that are being gentrified. Well, I too have a story, and people who listen to my show religiously have heard it before. Um, before I moved, before I moved to the suburbs, I lived in Bucktown. I like to say I lived there before it was really cool and as hip as it is now. But um, a block over from me, uh, a cop lived there, and and interestingly, I don't know how he managed this, but he, he also was assigned to the area. So he would go around, he would patrol in his cop car, and if I was walking uh, the dog or something, he'd stop and we'd chat. And I remember he stopped once and I was like, oh, you know, I I know this is crazy, but I haven't gotten over to your block in a while. How are things a block away? And he said, oh, I don't live there anymore. I couldn't I couldn't afford it. I had to move. And I I didn't know what to say to that. I mean, it was um, it was it was stunning to me. But, you know, I mean, your perfect example of gentrification 
when I first moved into Bucktown, sure, there were some places that had already been rehabbed and rebuilt, but there were also lots of places where the el- where elderly people lived who'd been there a long time and where cops could live on a cop's salary. And that's, I mean, you look at the houses for sale there now, and I defy you to find something under a million dollars. Exactly. And that's why this is so important, because um, you're, it's, it's so often it's not even a question of um, new people coming into the community. It's people that have been here for years. Uh, you look at um, a lot of folks that work in our schools, teacher aides. They can't afford to live in the communities where they're, where they're teaching, where they're part of the educational system. And yet you work with them every day. Parents know them. That's why it's, it's, it's just amazing to me how fearful they can get about this when it's the people they already know that this is going to help. Yeah, I think people forget about that. I mean, it's obvious in a situation like mine where maybe an elderly person needs help, but you want, you know, want neighborhood schools. And at least when they're starting out, or if it's a private school, a religious school, those teachers don't make a huge amount of money. And, you know, you, you want those people to be able to live in your neighborhood, then you've got to do something. You've got to figure out a way to make that happen. Exactly. Exactly. Do you think this is going to um, this legislation is going to get passed this this year or is it kind of uh, a work in progress? Uh, It it, we're going to give it our best shot. um, But if it doesn't pass this year, we're going to keep on trying. It's not something I'm going to let go. Well, I'd like you to uh, keep us abreast of how this is moving through. Uh, the state legislature, <clears throat> because, I mean, this is not only an issue that's not going away. This is an issue that is going to get worse and worse. You know, we talk about high property taxes. Well, one of the things that high property taxes do is they drive away those who either have a small salary or are on a fixed income. And uh, I don't see property taxes. <laughs> I would love to see my property taxes uh, get cut, but I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime. So we got to figure something else out here. And, Anne, I'm really glad you're working on this issue. Well, thank you, Joan. Um, and uh, I'm working on the property tax issues with TIF legislation as well. So, <laughs> Well, you know, I'm pretty old, so you better work fast on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, It's a pleasure to talk to uh, State Senator Ann Gillespie. She represents Illinois' 27th district, and uh, she is working not only on affordable housing, but on issues that might make our property taxes a little bit more bearable. And again, thank you for being here. My pleasure, John. Thank you. We are going to take a break for news, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about Uh, Former President Carter and current President Biden when we come back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Want to touch base again on a couple of really big stories. Uh, President Biden's visit to Ukraine and former President Carter's entering home hospice. Those are two of the biggest stories of, well, at least of the week, if not the day. Also want to remind those of you who are listening in Wisconsin, 
If somehow you have forgotten, if you have not voted early, remember tomorrow, you must set aside time to go to the polls. There are four candidates running to get in a two-person runoff to be the next Supreme Court justice for the state of Wisconsin. There are two very conservative people running. There are two Democratic people running. Any combination of those four folks could make it into the runoff. Two Democrats, two Republicans, one Democrat, one Republican. This is going to decide what Wisconsin is going to be and look like for the next 10 years. Every abortion matter, every gerrymandering case, every voting rights case that is going to come before this court, and they are legion, is going to be decided by this court, which, before this most recent retirement, it was a 5-4 conservative court. Frankly, that's part of the reason why Wisconsin is so screwed up right now. There are more Democratic voters than there are Republican voters in Wisconsin, and yet there are more Republicans in the State House, and Wisconsin's votes tend to end up with a win for the R because of the gerrymandering in that state. It is minority rule in Wisconsin, and the conservative Supreme Court has just rubber-stamped everything that's come before it. This is a chance for the people of Wisconsin to get out from under that. If you care about a woman's right to choose, if you care about people being permitted to vote, if you care about free and fair elections, you have got to vote for one of the Democrats running to be on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. The field of four is going to get cut down to two. And then uh, April, I think it's April 4th, is the election to choose one of those two people and put them on the court. It is one of the most important races. We talked about this when there was a Supreme Court seat up for grabs, two of them up for grabs in Illinois. You know, the way our government is functioning or perhaps not functioning right now, nothing is more important than these Supreme Court seats. It really, it really isn't. It's everything. It's all of it. Okay, so tomorrow, Wisconsin, we're going to be watching you. Pat Kreitlow from Up North News is going to join me on Wednesday, and we're going to talk about the results from the Wisconsin primary that takes place tomorrow. Tomorrow, uh, people of Wisconsin are going to be voting in this primary. Uh, President Biden, it, um, with the time change, I think it's about 1030 in the morning, is going to be making a speech from Poland. And Vladimir Putin is uh, expected to be making a speech tomorrow as well. And this Friday, the 24th, is the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. A lot going on this week. Um, The news broke over the weekend that former President Jimmy Carter was um, no longer going to be making visits to his local hospital. He'd been in and out a lot recently. He is going to stay at home and be treated to whatever time he has left with hospice care. And again, hospice doesn't mean imminent death. It means 
death is expected soon. Usually you are eligible for hospice care if it is believed you have six months or less to live. I don't know exactly what Jimmy Carter's health problems are. You know, he did have melanoma a certain number of years ago that had spread, but he also received treatment at that time, and doctors pronounced him free of cancer. Um, so we shall we shall see. But the one upside to all this is that um, I hope he is healthy enough and aware enough to appreciate the outpouring of kind words that are coming his way from every segment of our population. Whether or not you thought he was a good president, you know he is a good man. And he has done more to help the world in his post-presidency than I think any other president in my lifetime. We've gotten used to a lot of vitriol and a lot of blaming and a lot of finger-pointing. That seems to be what politics is right now. But it didn't used to be like that. We've gotten used to, particularly in the Republican Party, people losing elections and instead of conceding gracefully, claiming that somehow there's just simply no way they could have lost and the fact that people are telling them they've lost simply means that something uh, illegal must have happened because there's simply no way they could lose. That's a relatively recent development. It's a Donald Trump development. It's a Carrie Lake development. Pretty soon, though, if she wants to run to be the next senator in Arizona, she's going to have to admit that she's not actually the governor, which she still is apparently having trouble wrapping her head around. But that's not how it used to be. When someone was leaving office, particularly at the level of the presidency, the last words shared, the last speech was generally a speech of reconciliation. However difficult the campaign was, a speech of reconciliation and an acknowledgement that we're all in this together And that if we want to succeed as a country, we have to support the person we've just put in office. I want to share with you just um, a little, like, two-minute excerpt of the address that Jimmy Carter gave the nation. His final address as he was leaving the presidency. These are the kind of thoughts he wanted to leave with people. Listen to this. I've just been talking about forces of potential destruction that mankind has developed and how we might control them. It's equally important that we remember the beneficial forces that we have evolved over the ages and how to hold fast to them. One of those constructive forces is the enhancement of individual human freedoms through the strengthening of democracy and the fight against deprivation, torture, terrorism, and the persecution of people throughout the world. The struggle for human rights overrides all differences of color or nation or language. Those who hunger for freedom, who thirst for human dignity, and who suffer for the sake of justice 
They are the patriots of this cause. I believe with all my heart that America must always stand for these basic human rights at home and abroad. That is both our history and our destiny. America did not invent human rights. In a very real sense, it's the other way around. Human rights invented America. Ours was the first nation in the history of the world to be founded explicitly on such an idea. Our social and political progress has been based on one fundamental principle, the value and importance of the individual. The fundamental force that unites us is not kinship or place of origin or religious preference. The love of liberty is a common blood that flows in our American veins. The battle for human rights at home and abroad is far from over. We should never be surprised nor discouraged because the impact of our efforts has had and will always have varied results. Rather, we should take pride that the ideals which gave birth to our nation still inspire the hopes of oppressed people around the world. As I said, uh, tomorrow at 3.30, we're going to talk to Jonathan Alter, who wrote a biography of Jimmy Carter. And he said, you know, he's written other biographies of important people, but he said that he learned that had Jimmy Carter been reelected, he almost certainly would have begun to address global warming. Now, remember, this was a long time ago. And he, this is, uh, Jonathan says in his preface to the book, Carter's prescience on the environment and several other issues was n- not the only thing that surprised me about him. I knew about his human rights policy, but had no clue how much it advanced democracy around the world. We're going to talk to, uh, Jonathan about his book, his very best, Jimmy Carter, a life. He's not, Jimmy Carter's not dead, but he is at home undergoing hospice care. And um, let's take a look back and praise him while he's here still to appreciate it. Um, we're going to take a break. We're going to talk a little bit more about what is going on in Ukraine and President Biden's visit there right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. President Biden spent some time today walking around the streets of Kiev in Ukraine with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. His uh, first trip to Ukraine since it's been invaded by Russia. Apparently, he has been telling aides for months now that he wanted to go to Ukraine and they needed to make it happen. This week is a very good week to do it. This Friday, the one year anniversary of the invasion and by all accounts, Vladimir Putin and uh, the Russian army getting ready for another assault on the country. You know, initially there was thought that Putin would simply try to get the eastern portion of Ukraine so that he had easy access to Crimea and that that's once he had taken over that territory the war would, uh, the invasion would stop and he would try to negotiate a deal where that territory was simply ceded to him. But um, sometime before the war started, 
Somebody told uh, Mr. Putin, go big or go home. Take the whole country. What the heck, Vlad? Take the whole country. And uh, that is where the trouble began. By all accounts, this spring, Russia is going to make another effort, another offensive, not just to secure the eastern border, but to take the whole country. You know, one of the things I wondered about when I heard about President Biden in Ukraine today was how do they make sure? Because, you know, Russia has been attacking civilian targets. How do they make sure that there are no ICBMs headed to Kiev when uh, Joe Biden's walking the streets? Well, apparently our uh, Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, made a phone call to his counterpart in Russia sometime before Biden got to Ukraine. Apparently not a huge amount of time, but sometime before Biden got there uh, to basically give him a heads up. Like, you know, you might want not want to send any missiles to the downtown area during this time period because you really, really, really don't want to do that while the world is watching Joe Biden walk down the streets. And God forbid Biden himself should be injured because that would be something that NATO might have a problem with. So apparently those back channel communications did happen. It has been quiet. It was quiet in Kiev as President Biden walked the streets with um, Volodymyr Zelensky. A little earlier in the show, I shared with you some of an interview with Richard Engel, the longtime foreign correspondent for NBC, who is based right now in eastern Ukraine. And he was talking about President Biden's visit. As part of that interview, Richard Engel also talked about what the rest of the world believes that Vladimir Putin is still trying to do, still plans to do, and uh, might be doing in the very near future. Again, some pundits said, well, first some said, oh, Vladimir Putin will never invade. And then, then some said, well, he'll, he just wants eastern Ukraine. You know, they speak a lot of Russian, and that way he has a land bridge to Crimea. No. Mm-mm. Nope. Vladimir Putin thought he would roll into Ukraine and the people would just roll over. That hasn't happened. But according to Richard Engel, according to the government folks he's talking to, Putin still hasn't learned that lesson. Listen to uh, Richard Engel on MSNBC this morning. Putin decided to go for the maximalist option. He decided to topple the government and to capture the capital, Kiev, and he launched a series of lightning strikes with airstrikes and commando raids and tanks streaming across the country. And it was a colossal failure. Logistically, it just didn't work. The supply chain wasn't there. Tanks started breaking down. The uh, soldiers were, were, were being captured. There was low morale. And eventually, Ukrainian troops rallied. They got uh, American and, and other Western support and money and weapons. And they drove the, the, the Russians all the way back to the borders. And now... It seems like Russia, with this new offensive that has only been launched the last 
10 days or so, is trying to do it again, trying to accomplish what it wasn't able to accomplish the first time, but in a very different way. Uh, that was a, a blitzkrieg that failed uh, because Russia didn't have the kind of frankly, coordination. It didn't anticipate Ukrainian resistance. It didn't anticipate that the, the, the West would rally. So now it's uh, what I'm describing as a bulldozer approach. It is trying to move from the east and gradually advance the front line forward in a very destructive campaign, moving from village to village, raining artillery fire and trying to drive the front line deeper into Ukrainian territory. But I must say, uh, what we've seen so far, uh, it has not been terribly successful. There's been a lot of damage, uh, but Ukraine, Russian troops are suffering, suffering heavy losses, and they are not taking very much new territory, except around one particular city called Bakhmut, which, uh, Russia, which even some Ukrainian officials uh, predict might, might fall in the coming days. The United Nations is uh, going to be taking up the subject of Ukraine in a special session this Wednesday. Uh, the Security Council has been asked at Russia's request to look into uh, what happened with the Nord Stream pipeline. Remember, there the pipeline was sabotaged. <clears throat> Nobody ever that I'm aware of claimed responsibility for it. Uh, people were trying to figure out who it might have benefited, and the short answer is kind of nobody. Um, so, And Russia has certainly said, we didn't do it. So um, they have asked the Security Council to look in on that. And uh, Wednesday, the General Assembly is going to be holding a special session on Ukraine. Bottom line here is after a year, there's no end in sight. As you know, I talked to a number of political science professors and... Um, while they don't agree on everything, the one thing that they do seem to agree on is that no, no matter how much outside pressure we put on Putin, no matter how many troops the Ukrainians kill, injure, um, it is probably going to be the people of Russia who bring the pressure on Putin either by overthrowing him or simply demonstrating and uh, threatening his power. That's what it took to get Russia out of Afghanistan. Remember, they fought in Afghanistan for 10 years. The Russia has already lost, by some estimates, as many, by other estimates, more troops than they lost over 10 years in Afghanistan. But it they finally left Afghanistan because of the pressure brought by everyday Russians who were sick and tired of seeing their sons and their husbands get sent off to Afghanistan and coming back crippled, injured, sometimes not coming back at all. So what does it take? We've tried to make life difficult for the oligarchs locking up their money. But a lot of the people who might have been the most vocal protesters, remember when this war first started, a lot of activists left Russia 
once Vladimir Putin instituted a draft, young men and young families tried to leave Russia by the thousands. So who's left to protest? Not as many as before. He's, he's had an ironclad hold on the information people get for far more time than he's been in Ukraine. One of the things that surprised me when I first started talking to political science professors about this is you've got to understand that maybe young people with access to the Internet know what's going on in the rest of the world and know how their government is lying to them. But it's almost like here with the older generation that only ever watches Fox News and thinks that they know what's going on. The older generation in Russia has been subject to Putin's propaganda for so long that a lot of them believe it and believe in him. I don't know. I would never have believed that a year after the invasion... There would still be war, even though people told me that was the case. I mean, is this going to be something that goes on year after year? I, how is that possible? There's going to be literally nothing left of Ukraine. Let's take a break and shift back to what is going on in our cities and our state here in Illinois right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. One of our favorite people in the whole world is Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy. And uh, he has been talking to his voters about all different kinds of things recently, having town halls, and which I know for some politicians, that's a pretty scary thing to do. But um, those are the politicians that generally are not well-liked in their districts, and that does not apply to our good Fred Raja, who joins us now to talk about one of his most recent town halls. How are you, Congressman? Hey, Joan, I'm doing great. How about yourself? And happy President's Day. Happy President's Day to you, too. Um, we obviously both got the day off. <laughs> well, you know what? When you're a radio host, you're always by the microphone. And frankly, being a congressperson, I would imagine, is also a 24-7 job. Is it like, you know, it's like I, the, I've always talked to aldermen and people are calling them up at midnight and on Saturdays at 6 a.m. to talk about things and ask about things and complain about things. Do you get that kind of response from your constituents? You know, they are incredibly respectful, Joan. They, 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 um, when something is urgent, yes, they'll definitely contact me directly, and I, I'm, I welcome that. Um, and I have the best staff in the world, and they jump to attention. And, you know, like, for instance, when uh, I remember even like it was yesterday, um, I guess six years ago, um, around this time, around this weekend, when um, Muslim Ban 1.0 was put in place. And, um, you know, we got a call on a Saturday night that it was happening. We, I was the first uh, member of Congress to arrive at O'Hare and help to free a couple dozen, you know, uh, Muslim green card holders who were banned by Trump. And um, our, all of our staff converged um, on the scene to, to help free them. And so uh, I, I, I welcome the opportunity to, to help. And, you know, yes. Uh, it, it, the, 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 
requests range from pothole needs to be fixed <laughs> in front of my house to we need to withdraw from Afghanistan. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, it runs the gamut. And uh, uh, so it's a very interesting job that way. Let's talk about this um, event in Elk Grove Village that you had with uh, Congressman Jonathan Jackson and newly elected Delia Ramirez. Tell me about that. Yeah, it was all about basically protecting Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and education. You know, I think that, uh, you know, honestly, um, you've seen all the buzz in Washington with regard to Kevin McCarthy's promises to the Freedom Caucus uh, in exchange for their votes to get an elected speaker on the 15th ballot. And all those side deals that he cut are manifesting themselves in terms of really bad legislation that is coming to the floor. Um, Just to give you a taste of what some of those bills are, there's a bill to ban abortion nationwide. There's a bill to ban the IRS, the payroll tax, uh, to uh, ban estate taxes, uh, and to put in like a a 15% flat tax. And and now uh, we believe that they are going to usher forward um, legislation that uh, does cut these social safety net programs. And, you know, honestly, they have said, oh, you know, we're not going to cut Social Security and Medicare in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. But if you listen to their uh, leaders um, in the past, um, it really does um, kind of betray uh, what they're actually going to do. So just as an example, Senator Mike Lee, back in 2010, he said, one thing that you probably haven't heard from a politician, it will be my objective to phase out Social Security, to pull it up by the roots and get rid of it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, another senator that we're familiar with, uh, Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, he called Social Security, quote, a legal Ponzi scheme. So that's what their real um, kind of, thoughts are on these issues. So, you know, their reassurances that they're going to, they're not going to touch Social Security and Medicare sound as hollow as, uh, you know, George Santos's fake resume, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but I watched the State of the Union address, and when President Biden said, stand up for seniors, let them know this is off the table, and everybody stood and clapped, Raja. Are you saying that they're not going to stand by that agreement that they offered on the night of the State of the Union? I don't think so. And it's not just because they were probably crossing their fingers and toes and, you know, uh, uh, they were they were um, doing other things like that. I think it's because the way that they interpret cutting Social Security and Medicare is somehow consistent with their public profession of support for those programs. So what I mean by that is, for instance, they say in the Republican study committee budget, that is the largest house Republican caucus. It has almost 180 members. Okay. This Republican study committee budget endorsed raising the retirement age to 70. They do not believe that that is a cut because it would only apply to future retirees, not to present ones. Um, But for most people out there who are actually looking forward to retirement, maybe they're in their 50s, they're looking forward to, um, you know, basically retiring at 65, 
that's an absolutely that's absolutely a cut, right? Because that's five mm-hmm. years. Oh yes, it's that you earn that you're not going to be able to enjoy in retirement. And you can't count on. And remember, Joan. I mean, people really plan um, way out into the future um, for for their retirement, right? I mean, for most people, they're thinking, okay, I'll retire in X number of years. This mm-hmm. is what I'm going to have. This is what I can count on. Uh, to live this type of lifestyle, X type of lifestyle. So when they pull the rug out and say, oh, well, you know, retirement's going to be 70, that really, you know, upsets people's plans, and it's absolutely a cut. Well, and they're not even providing, you know, the adequate health care. But what if you don't live to 70? I mean, for for heaven's sakes, well, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's aside from whether or not you want to work till you're 70, a lot of people, uh, you know, that's 60s, 70s, 80s. That's prime uh, chronic illness time. I mean, that's just. Correct. And the other thing that I don't like about what Republicans are doing, and I think that this is also a technique they will use to skirt their promise, is like like this idea that was put forth uh, by, I think, Ron Johnson and Rick Scott, though they had different time periods, that, well, okay, we're not necessarily going to cut it, but let's change the rules so that we have to reauthorize it every year or every right. five years. Right. And I mean, that That's to me is 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 an absolute nightmare. Well, no, 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 we're not going to cut it. But don't you think that maybe five years down the road, we might want to just see the lay of the land and see how it's working? Not that we're going to make any cuts. I mean, that's. That is an absolute, no offense to those of you in Congress, because I know you do a lot of good work, but the idea that this issue would be taken up every year or even every five years is terrifying. It, it, it is, and I, you know, I think that even um, Mr. Scott, Senator Scott, is walking away from the notion uh, of somehow uh, sunsetting Social Security and Medicare every five years. I think he said the other day, I'm going to sunset every law except Social Security, Medicare, military benefits, pension. I mean, he just went down the line on the different things. He was not going to be sunsetting. And it just it just um, calls into question, you know, what are they talking about when they say in exchange for raising the debt ceiling, we're going to balance the budget or we're going to require balancing the budget. We don't know what they're talking about. Um, and so they should be very specific at this point. Yeah. And I notice in all of these discussions, nobody is adding, at least that I've heard, please correct me if I'm wrong. Nobody's adding Medicaid to those lists. That's right. Um, again, I go back to this Republican study committee budget, because that's to me, that has been the most specific of the different proposals that the Republicans have put out there. And this is what they've all kind of campaigned on. The Republican study committee budget would have cut Medicaid by $3.6 trillion over a decade. Um, And just so you know, I mean, your listeners already know this. It covers almost 100 million Americans, uh, more than 40% of all births. Uh, It pays for more than 50% of long-term care. And it covers, you know, almost 7 million people ages 65 and older, uh, not to mention 10 million people with disabilities who rely on Medicaid for their health care who are, you know, uh, um, in a position where they just can't necessarily work. And so this is 
uh, an incredibly important program. And by the way, Medicaid, expanded Medicaid is what provides medic, I'm sorry, Obamacare to so many people in so many states. And so um, you're, you're right. They don't mention Medicaid. There's a reason. And I think it's because it's on the chopping block. Yeah. I don't understand why they, and this, you know, this is something that didn't just happen with Trump. It seems my whole life Republicans have done everything in their power to to destroy the social service safety net that, you know, they want to they want tax cuts because they want the rich to get richer, um, which means generally the poor get poorer. But you know what, Raja, let's face it. If they were as smart as us, they would pull themselves up by their bootstraps and they'd be CEOs, too. Right. <laughs> I just I think that um, my, my observation is uh, a lot of these folks. Um, have these talking points and these slogans, um, not because they resonate with normal, everyday people, but because they may resonate with certain donors and special interests who are very powerful, help to fund their campaigns, whether it's a club for growth or some other uh, super PACs. And I think um, when the rubber meets the road, and they hear from constituents, they hear from their voters, um, then all of a sudden they start dancing and changing their tune. And so uh, what I would say to your listeners, to all the thousands of people who listen to you uh, and who are listening now, is please make your voices heard. Um, And it makes a difference because I think that the more they hear from, you know, everyday people, uh, the harder it is for do what's against their constituents' best interests. That's a good point, and I want to talk about that in greater detail, but we need to take a real quick commercial break. I'm talking to uh, Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm talking with Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy. Uh, Recently, he and Congressman Jonathan Jackson and Congresswoman Delia Ramirez and others had a big town hall in Elk Grove Village to talk about how to fight against Republican efforts to cut popular programs, Medicaid, and despite their promises, probably Medicare and Obamacare. You talked, Raja, before we went to break about um, one thing to way to fight this is to make your voice heard. What is the most effective way to do that? I think the most effective way is, you know, I think that you have to activate your friends and family uh, and others who are in the districts of members of Congress or senators who are on the wrong side of these programs. And I think, you know, a concerted effort makes a big difference. This next couple months, the reason why we did this is very simple, which is in these next two to three months, we're going to have pretty serious discussions in Washington, D.C. about raising the debt ceiling, which is absolutely crucial for um, maintaining the full faith and credit of uh, our, our U.S. dollar and for making sure that vendors get paid, Social Security recipients receive their um, checks, and um, that our federal government continues to operate. And so these discussions are going to revolve around you know, 
how do we do this in an orderly fashion, Joan, so that we don't go to the brink and the unthinkable happens? And, and so what we need to do is put super high amount of pressure on our colleagues on the other side and say, just raise the debt ceiling. Um, we can always talk about other issues separately, but this is not um, something that should be conditioned. The debt ceiling should not be conditioned on cutting any programs. Um, and so let's make it a clean affair, so to speak. I have a question about that. I um, hear all the pronouncements from Janet Yellen, and she's like, well, you know, I'm going to move money around and take it from one pocket and put it into the other pocket and kind of keep everything functioning. The first date I heard was that she thought she could keep things going till June. Now I'm hearing it might even be July that she can keep things going, too. But you talked about brinkmanship. I mean, when Democrats are in power, they usually vote to raise the debt ceiling because they know it's important. Or when when Republicans are in power, I'm sorry, Democrats support efforts to raise the debt ceiling. But when Democrats are in power, Republicans frequently use the debt ceiling as some kind of bargaining chip. And there seems to be every indication that that's going to happen again. I've heard some people predict that. Um, that will go up whatever the hard and fast date is. Let's just say it's July 1st, that the more radical elements of Kevin McCarthy's party will make sure that whatever the deadline is, that we cross it. Maybe only for 12 hours, maybe for 24 hours before they are coerced into giving in, but just as a show of power to probably mostly to Kevin McCarthy. And the uh, the experts I've read say the most likely scenario is that we will go right up to the edge, we will put a foot over the edge, and then they will pull it all back and vote for it. Is that the likely scenario you see, or do you think realistically there is a shot of getting this squared away before we get to that cliff? I don't know, Joan. I don't know the... I don't know um, exactly what Kevin McCarthy agreed to with some of these holdouts um, or whether he has even had serious discussions with them about what's going to happen as we get closer to that brink. And as you said, you know, Janet Yellen is doing a masterful job. Uh, It's kind of akin to, you know, what families do towards the end of the month, you know, prioritizing the groceries, and the car payment over the kids' shoes and making sure the rent is paid. Uh, and she's doing that with the money that she has right now to cover the priorities. But at some point, um, she's going to start running out of money, and, and, and there are going to be delays. I think once those delays start to materialize, it's just my gut. I think this is what happened in 2011 when they did the same thing to President Obama Once those delays started happening, uh, I'm talking about delays and payments to vendors, um, and then the talk about uh, delays and payments to Social Security recipients, that's when the real pressure went up on the Republicans uh, to become reasonable. Um, I hope it doesn't come to that, but I could envision that that's, that's potentially what it might take. My only suggestion is we start putting that pressure now. 
uh, as opposed to waiting until the very end. And that requires heightening people's awareness, which is kind of what I'm trying to do along with my colleagues. Okay, but you guys are Democrats. You're not the problem. Um, I think um, what was first, what was it like to sit there when there was vote after vote after vote (laughs) after vote in Kevin McCarthy, you know, cuddling up to Marjorie Taylor Greene, posing for selfies, you know, walking over and talking to, to Matt Gates. I mean, when when you were sitting there, did you think, oh, my God, it is going to be impossible to work with these people? Um, I thought I thought that this person is putting his personal ambition over the best interests of this country, because we don't know the, the deal that he was cutting with these people. And obviously with Marjorie Taylor Greene, one of the deals he cut was restoring her committee assignments. I'm on the oversight committee, Joan. So is Marjorie Taylor Greene now. And every time she talks, it's an insult. It's belligerence. It's hostility. It's, um, it's exactly the type of stuff that you don't want to see happen in any committee, let alone the oversight committee. Um, I also think that, um, you know, he is playing with fire um, when he shows them how much clout they have, that they can, you know, kind of take him as far as they did. And I think it emboldens them to do more. Um, So we'll see. We'll see what happens as as we go down the road here uh, towards the debt ceiling. But um, it is... uh, it is, it, it is very disturbing to say the least. By the way, I was, I don't know if I told you this before, but I was almost in the middle of that uh, um, uh, fisticuffs between Mike Rogers um, of Alabama and Matt Gates. I was standing right there when he uh, was about to lunge at Matt Gates. I couldn't believe um, I was almost at fight night, which is a oh my God. issue altogether. That's amazing. What was was going through your mind? I mean, (laughs) I I, I, I was stunned. My jaw was on the was on the ground. I um, it was the strangest thing I have ever seen. Um, Not only did Mike Rogers come out and and, you know, he said something like, Matt Gates, you're going to pay for this as he was storming past me to get to Matt Gates um, uh, at that moment or Shortly thereafter, um, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I, I discovered, was standing next to me or very close. And she whipped out her phone and she said to uh, another one of the holdouts, um, the Freedom Caucus holdout, she said, uh, uh, President Trump wants to speak with you. And he said, don't you dare you know, bring that phone by me. And I was like, I cannot believe I'm. I'm watching this. This is the nuttiest thing ever. Um, And God help us. You were probably too young to remember the days of Chicago City Council when every day was like performance art. Dick Mel jumping up on top of a desk, banging with his shoe to get the attention of the city council. I mean, it was... It was like must watch TV every day. 
And, you know, I thought, yes, that was a crazy, tumultuous time in our past. We'll never see those crazy days again. And not only are we seeing them again, but good God, we're seeing them in Washington. We're seeing them on Capitol Hill. I mean, you said you sit on a committee with Marjorie Taylor Greene. When it comes time to vote on the debt ceiling, what do you think she will do? Because on the one hand, she's crazy. But on the other hand, she's trying to be Kevin McCarthy's best friend in the whole world. So how do you think somebody like that will vote? I I don't see her doing the right thing. Um, I, I honestly I don't know what McCarthy will do. I think um, he. Do you think he'll still be speaker right? in July? Um. So here's the thing, which is I'm not sure. I'm not sure who would be the alternative to him right now, and I uh, I'm not sure if he'll be speaker in July, but. Um, what I'm hoping, and I, I know this might sound naive, is, you know, I'm hoping that we can walk him back uh, from the brink of cutting any other deals with uh, with the Freedom Caucus holdouts, because, you know, for the good of our country, we've got to avoid, you know, doing this bad stuff. And by the way, Joan, I mean, that's not the end. Um, you know, there's the there's the debt ceiling, but then we have the end of the year spending uh, bills, appropriations bills that we have to um, approve as well. And, um, you know, there's other things like reauthorizing the FAA, uh, the farm bill, which has SNAP benefits, which, by the way, my family relied upon for a time. So I know the, I know you and your listeners know the importance of it as well. And, um, and so we just have to do some basic stuff and avoid doing other bad stuff uh, and get out of this Congress and and then get back to a a Democratic majority. Raja, I know that stuff that you just mentioned sounds important, but don't you think your effort is better spent investigating the weaponization of the government, you know, like Jim Jordan is doing? Oh, my goodness. (sighs) Um, You know, I... uh, This is going to be uh, another interesting committee, and... uh, Let's just see. We have some capable people on there who can spar with them. But, you know, it's too bad that we have to spend time doing that um, when there's so many other challenges that we face and uh, we should work on together. Uh, In that spirit, if if you don't mind, I'd just like to also um, uh, extend my uh, thoughts uh, about Jimmy Carter. Um, He's probably a hero to all of us on President's Day. Um, you know, he entered hospice care, uh, as, as many of your listeners know, and uh, he's spending his remaining time at home. And um, I think on, on, on President's Day today, I think we should remember his selfless sacrifice, public service, and, you know, his, his humanitarian work, his tireless work around the world. Um, that's, to me, what a real um, classy uh person does uh, and a true patriot yes um and one of the silver linings i think of going into hospice care at home so publicly is that he can see how loved he is and how appreciated he is and he is uh hopefully still in a position to take all that in because i think the outpouring has been really extraordinary and uh, uh, thank you for mentioning yeah. that as we 
as we wrap this up. I really uh, appreciate it. Uh, well, you, good Jerry. luck. I, you know, I think you're going to have you. the it's going to be like Dickens, the best of times and the worst of times coming up in the U.S. <laughs> Congress. Raja Krishnamurthy will be here periodically to tell us uh, whether or not the inmates are running the asylum. And, you know, <laughs> we our good thoughts go with you. Thank you, Joan. Please send more of them. And please, please, everybody speak out. Uh, and speak up and speak loudly about these programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, education, um, and, and all these other vital programs that help keep our, uh, keep our people safe and secure. And um, it's really important now. Thank you so much, Congressman Krishnamurthy. We are going to take a break. When we come back, we are going to talk to Ed Yanka of the American Civil Liberty American Civil Liberty. Oh, forget it. Ed Yanka is going to be here right after the break. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. And we are joined by Ed Yanka of the American Civil Liberties Union. He is spending a little bit of time with us before he runs off to have a fabulous dinner uh, at the event we talked about earlier. Uh, thank you for sharing some of this time. Are you talking to me now to kind of work up an appetite, Ed? You know, I thought that would be helpful, Joan. Um, <laughs> I will confess to you, uh, because I have some insider information I have seen the menu, and goodness mm. knows I do need to work up an appetite. Mm. This is the chef's dinner that is uh, happening tonight with a lot of our local celebrity chefs uh, creating a multi-course meal for those people who uh, support the ACLU not only with their wallet but also with their stomachs. Where is it you're heading off to? I forget. Uh, it's, uh, uh, oh, goodness gracious, uh, it's uh, Chef's Corner. No, um, I'll find it. I'm sorry, Joe. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> that. That's okay. Yeah, I, I, I should have known that one. Um, it is It is at Chef's mm-hmm. Special Cocktail Bar on North There Western you Avenue. go. Well, there you we know. Are. There we are. If I were um, a more professional radio host, I also would have had that information because, you know, being a radio host is kind of like being an attorney in court. You really shouldn't ask a question that you don't know the answer to just in case the person who's answering it decides to uh, tell you something that isn't true. Um, so, you know, hey, uh, we're both equally guilty here. Okay. Somewhat, you know, I'm unburdened by legal training. I can just wing it. I don't have to be held to that view. You don't. You don't have to. Um, that's not the standard that you worked. Okay. All right. All right. All right. There is so much. Um, it's nice to talk to you and and have a have a smile and have a laugh. But so much of what is going on in the world and so much of what the ACLU is doing is um, is pretty serious. You know, I'm reading, it seems like every day, Ed, I'm reading about a new lawsuit in some state that's going to end up in front of the U.S. Supreme Court and take away some new right. 
you know, Reno DeSantis has now decided that, um, you know, since he got his way with uh, with African-American studies and gay books, you know, now it's time to go after reporters and when they are protected by the First Amendment and when they are when they are not protected by the First Amendment. I know uh, ACLU of Illinois focuses a lot on what is going on in this state. What would you say right now are the top two or three big cases the ACLU is involved in here? In in Illinois, I think uh, probably the the top couple of matters that we are are um, uh, most actively involved with are number one around trying to enforce the consent decree to get real reform of the Chicago Police Department. Uh, you know, there, there. I think, is, as we've seen in the last few years of this consent decree, the city has moved incredibly slowly uh, to, to uh, reform and to upgrade policing in our city so that every neighborhood is safe. I think the second issue that I would point to is our ongoing efforts to improve uh, conditions and, and, and matters for, um, you know, for young people under the care of DCFS statewide and trying to get to a place where we actually have services that are available for any child, depending on what they need, not necessarily just one size fits all kind of institutional settings for for young people uh, in that way. I think that I think that those are a couple of things that are, you know, really incredibly important. And then the last thing I point to um, is at the at the on the, in the legislature um, and and something that you may have seen referred to in the editorial in the Sun Times actually this morning is an effort that that we're working on with a number of legislators to help protect yours and mine's uh, health data our, our our health information to ensure that when we give information order over. To an app or something like that, that it's not sold or shared or somehow monetized by somebody else uh, to be used in some way, um, you know, ultimately perhaps even against us. So I would say that just thinking broadly about what we're seeing here, I think I think those are the three areas. Although I, I I'm sorry because I said I was going to only do three. Um, <laughs> I'm now going to say I think we are very much concerned with what is happening in Texas with regards to yeah. um, the Mr. Prestone, the, the morning after pill uh, or medical abortion uh, uh, litigation that's happening down there. Because of course, depending on what that ruling is, depending on whether or not it's nationwide, you know, that could effectively be a national ban on abortion medication. And you know what, that is obviously something that concerns us here in in much the same way it does all across the country. Let's talk about that a little bit more, because I've I've reported on that here in this show Uh, to bring my listeners up to speed. There's a Trump appointed judge who is very Trumpy, exceedingly Trumpy in Texas, who uh, has delayed briefly a ruling that's going to be coming out that could affect not only Texas, 
but the rest of the country. It would, as I understand it, Ed, and I talked to a legal expert and some, you know, I'm not real well versed in the legal world, but what I think I understood was um, that if the judge rules against uh, this drug, essentially what the judge will be saying is that the, this court, his court, his ruling is saying that the FDA didn't do the job that it was supposed to do the way it was supposed to do it. So therefore, he's ruling that this drug should no longer be available. And it, the expert I spoke to said that, like, in the history of the court system, you know, nobody apparently has ever said to the FDA, um, you're not doing your job, so I'm going to do it for you. I mean, I feel, Ed, like we're getting into this world where all that matters is the courts. There's no longer a co-equal branches of government. It's the court makes all the decisions, decides what laws stay and what don't, so basically lays down all the laws. And now we've got a judge basically trying to overrule a judgment made by the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, it's and, just and, unbelievable to me. And made by the Food and Drug Administration more than 20 years ago, Joan. I think that is one of the things that is, that is you know, really critical to think about in, in this context is, is this is a drug that was approved for use during the Clinton administration. <sighs> and after 22 years, you could have a single court judge sitting in Texas rule that the FDA's process we're having approved that drug, a drug that has been on the market and proven safe and effective for 20 plus years. It, it, you know, one of the possible outcomes, and we don't know exactly what the court will rule, but one of the possible outcomes is, is that the judge could actually order the FDA to withdraw its approval for this medication. And if that happens, you know, m- Thousands of women across this country, thousands of people who need that drug across this country will no longer potentially have access to it. Uh, and, 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 you know, while this works its way through the courts, you know, on, on the basis of one judge substituting their judgment for, again, not just the FDA in, 19, in you know, in 1999, but also for people uh, across, you know, people across this country who've used the drug in a safe and effective way, uh, you know, over these 20 years. And, and it really, you know, I think you and I talked shortly after the Dobbs decision came down. And one of the things that we talked about was that it was always a lie that they wanted to return this question to the states. There has always been an intention of having a national ban on abortion. That is where these folks are moving to. This is part of that effort to cut off access to medication abortion. And, and we should know what we're up against and recognize it. It is why, you know, again, we have put in the protections we have put in place in Illinois. But, but again, when these kinds of things are happening at the national and the federal level, it just, it, you know, it, it complicates life for people, even in a state like Illinois. It certainly does. And I want to talk to you. Um, we need to take a break, Ed. But when we come back, I want to talk to you about worst case scenario here. If this Texas judge uh, tries to strike down this FDA approval, 
I want to talk to you about where we go from there and whether or not we can basically prevent this ruling from having the effect it's designed to have. Ed Yonko with the ACLU of Illinois is here. We're going to continue our talk right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Ed Yonka of the ACLU of Illinois. We've been talking about this Texas ruling by a federal Trump-appointed judge that potentially could make uh, a medication abortion, the medicine for it anyway, unavailable across the country. If this happens, obviously there are going to be efforts, Ed, to... What would you do? Would you get a, a like a stay, an injunction, emergency relief? And who, what how would who would go after that? And what court would they go to? How would the process work? Absolutely. And so, you know, one would presume if the judge, for example, ordered the FDA to withdraw their approval, that the very first thing that happened would be that the FDA would appeal that decision to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and they would do they would do so and and ask for a stay of the injunction, presuming the judge puts an injunction in place. Um, which I think, if they if they go all the way and, and ask for the withdrawal, I think it's a pretty good bet. Um, so they would set they would ask for the injunction to be lifted while the matter is litigated at the appellate court. If the appellate court were to deny that for some reason, and the Fifth Circuit is one that is particularly conservative, uh, one presumes that the FDA would take the step of asking the Supreme Court of the United States to step in and at least allow the medication to continue to be used while this matter is being litigated up through the courts. No guess as to where that would land uh, and what that would look like, but that would be, I think, what what would happen. There is some, I think, if if none of that were to work out, uh, there is there are a couple of of other possibilities here, or a couple of things, I guess we we need to point out in the worst case scenario. Um, the first is is that medical experts say that there are other drugs which can be prescribed in these situations. They are, they are not as effective, and they may have other side effects, which would be complicated and, and dangerous or at least harmful uh, to people seeking to terminate a pregnancy. But at least there would be some option and some other uh, methods and methodologies that doctors and others could consider in working with their patients. The second thing I think that you would have to look at is, is the real harm that would be caused in places across the country where, um, you know, medication abortions are really uh, what is, what is uh, saving uh, in many ways people from being forced to carry a pregnancy to term uh, and being forced to expand their families in ways that they're simply not able or prepared to uh, right now. And then the last thing I think we do need to recognize is that this would put an even greater burden uh, on states like Illinois that are providing care uh, in sometimes uh, and in some ways, 
you know, for other states around the Midwest and around uh, the region uh, so that people could come here and, and receive the health care that they want uh, without that. And, and it would just further complicate, you know, what is what is already a, a, a very complicated and muddled scene across the country uh, in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision last summer. Um, and I think it would, you know, I, I think in many, many ways, it is, again, uh, evidence of this this really burning desire on the part of some in the in the on, on the part of the anti-abortion movement. I shouldn't even say some on the part of the anti-abortion movement, literally to force every woman in America to carry their pregnancy to term no matter what. Uh, and and that is a dark scenario. Uh, I think that 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 people across this country are going to face in the wake of, of you know the worst case in this in this particular um, instance. It frightens me to hear you say that one of the avenues for um, putting if we if this decision goes the way everyone expects it to go, uh, that one of the avenues for trying to put off. The effects of it are to go to the Supreme Court. Uh, I don't know about you, Ed, but have you looked at the Supreme Court lately? Um, uh, I, I don't have a lot of faith that this is something that they're going to stand uh, stand by for. And here's the here's the other thing. I also would like to know how that works, because sometimes, you know, obviously the court agrees to hear a case and then uh, they hear arguments and they make a ruling. But sometimes when there is an emergency motion, it seems that one justice alone can look over the issue and and take care of it on at least a short term basis. Is there any way if that's the process here that we can get, say, I don't know, Sonia Sotomayor to be the one to weigh in on this rather than Clarence Thomas? Well, unfortunately, the 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 justices divide up the circuits and in in extreme cases where a single justice has to make a decision or at least a temporary decision while the other justices are consulted uh, on a particular matter, um, that's already assigned. I'm afraid that I don't know who the justice is who covers the Fifth Circuit, I, I, I will say that I agree with you. You know, if we think back all the way to to, you know, the Texas SB nine law that allowed for the bounty hunting of people who helped folks get an abortion, uh, you'll, you'll recall that the Supreme Court let that law go into effect even while it considered its uh, constitutionality. And so, you know, which was just, a, I think, a precursor to what we saw in Dobbs. So I don't I, I agree with you that that is not necessarily um, the greatest of venues in, in, in this moment. But it is, in fact, part of the process. And it would be the way the process would work uh, if, if, in fact, this decision goes the wrong way in the Texas court. I don't like a lot of things that are happening in this country right now, and I don't see much, much short-term positivity because the the courts, it seems, which used to be kind of a last bastion of sanity, 
now are worse than a lot of the legislators in uh, partisan politics. Do you think that you see light at the end of the tunnel? And give me an idea, how long is this tunnel? Um, I think the tunnel is long. Uh, You know, I I think in terms of light, uh, I think there's two things to think about. And and I, I guess, number one, we know that that just recently the Senate approved um, the 100th federal judge to be nominated by this uh, by this administration. Um, but but there is a reality that there has been a stratagem in place on the part of the right for many years and many decades to capture. Uh, the the federal courts and that that has been exacerbated uh, in in the last several years with the way nominations have been handled to the Supreme Court. And the, the, the essentially, you know, it isn't that the law or or precedent changed. It was that the lineup changed at the Supreme Court. So I think that there is no question that um, the, the tunnel we're talking about is very long. But here is, I think, and let me just say that I think about this a lot, Joan. Um, and I talk about this with other ACLU folks from around the country. I think that what that does is it puts an even greater emphasis on the work that we all do at the state and at the local level. Because at the end of the day, you know, the, our, remember that our federal constitution is just a floor for rights. It is the it is the line by which gover, uh, under which, by which government cannot go under. But it doesn't set the aspirational mark. It doesn't tell us what we can't do. And I think that at the state level, at the local level, we have to think about how we build up respect for and protection of fundamental rights in a state like Illinois, so that we have two things. Number one, so that we are a refuge for people to come through. Right now, that looks like it's a refuge for things like abortion care and gender-affirming health care. But, but also, because there's going to come a day when other states are going to look, are going to see these as failed policies, and they're going to look for what they can do in order to move their state, their municipality, their, you know, jurisdiction forward, we ought to be providing here in Illinois and in other states the kind of beacon of hope for states that shows them legislation that they can put in place to create a kind of an environment that respects rights for their folks as well. I'm joined by Ed Yonka of the ACLU of Illinois. We are going to take a break and continue this discussion in just a few minutes. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Ed Yonka, and we are talking about all of the issues that the ACLU is paying attention to. Ed, one thing that I wanted to specifically ask you about, because I, you know, I get all the newsletters from a lot of the um, progressive activists group around the state. And uh, just in the last year, at least a couple different organizations have done detailed, in-depth programs on how to protect your local school board. 
What is going on? I know that there have been organized, concerted efforts on the part of radical right Republicans to try to take over school boards as another way to control, you know, the books on race and the and the books on LGBTQ and what teachers can do and what teachers can say. I'm I you and I know that Illinois tends to be more of a bastion of blue in a sea of red. But I thought that the fact that these organizations were focusing on that must mean that they are concerned that this is coming to Illinois or maybe it's already here. What is the ACLU keeping an eye on that and what's going on? Well, it it is here, Joan, and I'm I'm really glad you raised this. You know, in in uh, after we get by the February 28th first round here in Chicago or primaries across the state, you know, we're going to have a consolidated municipal election in April uh, across the state of Illinois that will include elections for school boards, for park district boards, for library boards, for a range of, of things. And in many, many places across this state, uh, there are groups who are targeting those elections uh, to take control of our schools and our ob- other public spaces in order to enforce their agenda of what should and should not be taught, what should be publicly available, what should be available to be read, and who ought to get uh, who ought to be able to host events uh, in many of these communities. Um, and so, you know, I, th- I think that this is something that uh, every one of our listeners ought to be thinking about, because, again, there are a, there are groups that are organized. A lot of them, foc- or, you know, sort of focused in the suburbs on, for example, installing school boards who will put in place uh, or, or attempt to put in place uh, policies that will discriminate against uh, uh, LGBTQ youth. Uh, They will try to ban books. Uh, They will try to control the curriculum so as not to teach America's authentic history, but the kind of, of, you know, scrubbed, cleansed, uh, homogenized history that they want to teach about where this country has come from and where we need to go. And then lastly, uh, you know, they will try to eliminate uh, any kind of really meaningful, comprehensive sexual health education uh, from the curriculum of these, uh, you know, of these schools. And, and I think, you know, this is something that is happening under these banners of parental rights or parental choice. But the problem is, uh, I think in this, and I promise I'll stop talking here, Joan, they don't want the choice. <laughs> I asked you to talk. Students. You keep talking. Yeah. yeah. They don't want the choice just for their student where they often have a lot of choice. They want to make the choice for every student. They don't want to just decide that their child can't read a book. They want to tell you that your child can't read the book. They just don't want to keep their own child away from learning about the history of slavery or racism or Jim Crow in this country. They want no one to learn about those things. And, and, you know, it's, it's always fascinating to me. It's fascinating to me. That we seem to have, you know, that we use these buzzwords like freedom and liberty and choice, but they only mean certain people's choice. 
They don't mm-hmm. need everyone's choice. And I, so I would be, you know, as, a, as, as, as this is one of those times where candidly every single voter across the state of Illinois, certainly every voter, you know, who's hearing this discussion, you know, really needs to look at who's running for those races. And, and if, if we can all be honest with one another, Sometimes those races for local boards and et cetera are not the ones that we really think about going out and voting in, right? We vote for president, mm-hmm. we vote for the governor, we vote for a senator, and then are we really interested? This really matters because what happens at the local level is going to determine and, in fact, probably have a lot more impact on you and your children's lives than, than even sometimes what happens in Congress. And so I think that there's a there's a real crying need to educate oneself, to pay attention and really to think about, you know, what these boards do. Let me let me just tell you a a, a little quick story, because I think it's it's reflective of of how far down this sort of goes. Um, Last year, uh, out in Plainfield, Illinois, uh, a group Plainfield Pride was going to host a pride event. Uh, at some at some park district property uh, at, at a local park or a local park building, et cetera. And so they were approved. They went through all the, you know, they, they submitted an application. They submitted a deposit. They met all the requirements. Boom, they're going to get access to this space. One of the things they decided to do as part of their program was to have a drag time story hour uh, as part of the event, and literally the park district board threatened to withdraw their approval for the event. Now, ultimately, the, the, the folks at Plainfield Pride and got a little bit of help from the ACLU, but the folks at Plainfield Pride stood up, made clear that that was, a, you know, that that was unconstitutional to do, and the, the board backed down. But the reason the board was going to, was going to give in was because they were hearing from these loud voices and said that it was awful to host that on park district property. And, and so, you know, what happens is if we don't show up, if people who care about these issues don't show up, it is only the loud screaming voices, as I make my voice loud and screaming, who get to decide <laughs> these kinds of public policies. That's why it matters who sits in that chair, because it is going to be someone who caves to that kind of pressure or is it going to be someone who stands up and stands up for constitutional rights? I think that's why these elections in April may be as important as anything we've seen in the state of Illinois in a long, long time. And um, it always amazes me, you know, uh, with all the, like you mentioned, the drag events, the the complaints about how it's, you know, they they wear suggestive costumes and this and that. And several people have pointed out on social media that if they're going to ba- ban these uh, drag performers being out and about or ban drag shows, that they really have to pretty much ban professional wrestling because they wear very suggestive outfits. They frequently grab their genitals and the genitals of others, and they behave more egregiously than the average drag queen. Somehow that idea, Ed, hasn't gotten a lot of traction. I don't understand why. Well, you know, the, 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 the level of 
sort of hypocrisy about all of these things. I, I, I going back to some of our earlier discussion, it is fascinating to me that the people who, when it came to COVID and the vaccines were the my body, my choice uh, uh, folks, can't be found with that language when it comes to abortion care or, uh, you know, gender affirming health care. Uh, you know, and I think in the same way, I, again, you know, and the, the thing of it is, Joan, I, I, I will admit I, I am aware that the rest, professional wrestling uh, is just as you describe it. It is suggestive. It is sometimes lewd. It is sometimes um, always it, it is sometimes not sometimes misogynist. always it is misogynist. It is all those things. I have a way of dealing with that for me personally. I don't watch it. There I you go. But I don't feel like banning anybody else. Exactly. You're not going to tell the people who live down the street from me. I think this is offensive. Therefore, you shouldn't watch it. And that's the fundamental. That's the fundamental building blocks of freedom. It is not that I control what you think or what you see or what you do. I get to make those choices for myself. You get to make them for yourself, and the person down the street gets to make them for themselves. And we may not agree on what those choices are. We may not agree on on what we believe. But the truth is, we do have the ability to believe that for ourselves. And I, I think that that is, is something that's been lost in all these discussions. And it really has a, a layer and an element of an authoritarian kind of, of, of thing. I, I will say just to, to, to round this off, like I was, it's really odd to me. It's really odd to me to hear people talk as we did in the response to the state of the union about an agenda being shoved down their throats. When mm-hmm. point of fact, it is, it is often the denial of people being able to read what they want and learn what they want and make decisions for themselves that comes from that very audience. And, it, and so it, it, it's just a, it's a maddening thing in terms of thinking about basically what freedom, what liberty, and what civil liberties are in this country. Yep. I'm speaking with Ed Yonka of the ACLU of Illinois. We are going to keep him here for one more segment, and then we're going to send him off to have a fabulous dinner, but that's a discussion for another time. We'll be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Ed Yonka of the ACLU of Illinois. We've been talking about a lot of the cases that the ACLU is looking at in Illinois and across the nation, but Ed, I'd like you to back up and, you know, usually, as my audience knows, I like to make sure that we're all on the same page. You know, we all we define our terms as politically. There are some words like God help me progressive, which I think has lost all meaning. Um, But I'd like you to explain using little words so that I can follow along how you would describe the First Amendment. Just uh, here's kind of the things that are covered. Here's kind of the things that wouldn't be considered First Amendment, freedom of the press, free speech. Can you can you give me a primer on that? Sure. So the First Amendment really. At its core is the amendment that allows us as Americans 
and people in the United States to define who we are for ourselves. That's how I think of it. So, for example, the First Amendment protects the right to speech, right? I can say what I want, but that also means that when others say things, I can listen and I can decide what I believe. And for each of us, as we were talking about in the last segment, that's going to be different. Now, there are limitations on, on speech, which, which we can talk about when that speech becomes a threat to someone else, when it, when it moves from being my view to actually my using my words to, to cast out or cast dispersions or somehow uh, uh, put at risk someone else. So, so those are things that we, we do need to, you know, we need that are some controls on it. Additionally, the First Amendment protects the, the right of people to, to worship or to practice their religion as they want to. And again, all, it doesn't allow the government to define a religion or define which religions get that protection, although sometimes I wonder about this court in that particular area. Um, but, but it says that you can believe again, you can believe, you can feel, you can act in your religion in whatever way that you want. It doesn't allow you to project your religion on to somebody else. It says that you get to define yourself in whatever way you want through, through that religion. Uh, it, it protects the press. And this is important, not simply because we always need the press to be a check on government, but we actually need lots of voices in the press. I know there's some we might not like from time to time, but we need those voices to be out there because in many, many ways, they reflect the dynamic of what people are feeling. They, they reflect out how people are acting. And, and the more coverage we get of something, the more eyes we get on it, the more transparency about what our government is doing, it allows us to question that government, question those policies, make suggestions for different things. And that the last freedom that's included in that in that First Amendment is the right to petition your government, the right to, you know, it's the right to demand change. It's the right to, you know, write a letter, to write an email, to make a call to your member of Congress or your local state representative. It's the right to go to Springfield and be heard on a particular bill or to be part of a protest somewhere uh, or to, you know, create art that that, you know, uh, reflects a particular point of view or challenges a political belief. All of these things are things that are kind of fundamental to how we define who we are. They, they, and, and what it says is the government can't get in the way of you or me or, or, or anyone else making those decisions about who we are, and what we want to believe, and the way we want to arrange our lives. That's really the core of the First Amendment. I have a quick question from a recent example. It made national news when a reporter was trying to do a live shot in the back of the room while Ohio Governor Mike DeWine was speaking in the front of the room. And there's a lot of video of that reporter being forcibly removed. Now, is that freedom of speech or does Mike DeWine have the right to say, you know, if you want to do a live shot, um, you know, you're going to have to go out to the parking lot. You know, that's a, it's a it's a really good example of what I think is is 
the principle and then an overreaction to it, right? Because, you know, Mike DeWine, as the government speaker in that case, is trying to address the public about a very serious matter. And so he and and the folks who are there who are trying to listen and to report out to as many people as possible, like, you know, I think have the right to have a room in which they are able to share that information. Reporters are able to ask questions and et cetera without interruption. I think where it gets, of course, I, I, I don't think any of us can, uh, you know, endorse the idea of throwing someone to the ground and handcuffing them and arresting them, you know, for violating that. There's a way to move folks out of this. But the way I often think of this is, you know, you have a right to free speech, but that free speech isn't absolute. And, and the example I often use when I go and talk to high school students is, you know, you have a right to speak out about issues with the school that you might not be happy with, but you don't have the right to get up and dis- to, to, um, disrupt your calculus class in order to share those views. There's an appropriate place and time to do that, and there can be some restrictions around that. Although, I probably was thinking too much about issues that I didn't like about school and calculus, which was <laughs> my inability to do calculus nowadays. Um, but but it's, it's just there are some limitations in terms of time and place and, and that with reporting. And there's no reason that that person couldn't do that live stand up, but just simply do it in a place that didn't disrupt the ability of everyone else to be able to hear the information that was being shared. Mm-hmm. And. You know, this uh, also, I know we don't have a lot of time, free speech also comes up when um, people are talking about comedians and what they can and can't say. Uh, I read a really interesting interview with Mark Marin recently, and they kind of talked about that, like what is um, what is appropriate, what isn't. And a lot of comedians believe that pretty much anything goes as long as it's under the auspices of comedy. Would that be a reasonable stand? And, well, and one of the most important things here is, is I think that is a reasonable stand as well, you know, because what's important is, is that the government isn't making a decision about where that line is and where it isn't. Because, you know, again, um, you know, we, we know comedians who, who, you know, whether it's Mark Maron or, uh, you know, or, or um, you know, or others. Uh, who, you know, we may not like their language, we may not like their comedy. Well, again, we can make an individual choice to either patronize that or not, right? I can listen to Ricky Gervais or I cannot. Uh, what, what we don't want is to have the government decide which kind of comedy is okay and which mm-hmm. kind of comedy isn't, because that never works out well. And what yep. ultimately happens is, of course, that the only comedy that is permitted is the comedy that supports the view of the popular and the powerful. And that's never a good thing in terms of whether it's comedy or prose or any of the other things. That's where censorship comes in in a way that's really harmful to a, to a free and open society. And I also happen to be of the opinion that the government should not be in the doctor's office, that when the doctor and I make a medical decision, it should be the doctor and I. And, you know, maybe if I want to invite a friend or a spouse or somebody in the room with me, maybe that's it. But I don't want the government 
being in the room saying, well, doctor, yes, that might be medically necessary, but no, we're not going to go with that. There's so many places the government doesn't belong. And I think it is one of the wonderful missions of the ACLU is to make sure that the government doesn't overstep. Ed, thank you so much. I really appreciate you doing this before I know you're heading off to that big fundraiser tonight. Always a pleasure to talk with you, my friend. Anytime, Joan. Just just let me know. I'm always happy to come and join you. Thank you. I appreciate that. That is going to do it uh, for me today. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is up next. Going to be talking to some of the candidates who want to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago tomorrow. So please join us for that. Also, um, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to talk to Jonathan Alter uh, about his biography of Jimmy Carter and his insights into the man. And remember, if you live in Wisconsin and you can hear my voice, make sure if you haven't already voted, you get out and vote tomorrow in that primary for Supreme Court. It couldn't be more important. Okay, I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Santita, of course. Santita Jackson starts our day at 6 a.m. Until then, my friends, have a great evening and stay safe. Good night.